Hello and welcome to Buddy No Mistakes. Yoguchi 2. Doing a book, read, and commentary. We had a little real estate problem. Book. <laughs> Enjoy. Arriving in mid. Okay, so first of all, uh, we're reading. Uh, we had a little real estate problem, and we are on page two. This is the second episode, season seven, episode two. Uh, bonus. These will all be listed as bonus. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so here we go. We're gonna start reading. And uh, I'll be doing commentary along the way. Possibly. Arriving in Minneapolis, just as the sun is setting, he walks into the Spring Street Tavern, where 15 young comedians are milling about. There are nine people in the crowd. Robert sits in a corner reviewing a notepad, scratching out some topics and adding others. Tonight is his first bout of stage fright in 47 days. 90 minutes... 90 minutes later, he he's on stage telling jokes. I think it's great that Bruce Jenner transitioned to Caitlyn Jenner, he tells the sparse crowd. But I don't think she should have picked a young woman's name. I mean, she's 70 years old. Are you kidding me? Her name should be Gladys. After the show, the... Other open mic comedians are hanging out, smoking joints, talking about their next gig. But Roberts is already gone. He has to take his house full of kids to daycare in the morning. It's 11 p.m. and there's a five hour drive ahead of him. I've been doing stand up for eight years, says Roberts. Sometimes I think I should just quit. Compared to his contemporaries in Los Angeles and New York, the amount of stage experience Roberts has is minimal. In New York, a comedian with eight years of experience can get on stage every single night. Someone who's really hustling can do as many as six shows in a single evening. Roberts is lucky as if he gets on stage once a month. That makes it hard to move forward. Most open mic hopefuls are between the ages of 18 and 23. Roberts is in his early 40s. It's an advanced age for sure. He says, although they said Rodney Dangerfield went back to comedy for 40, at 44. So that's always in the back of my mind. Some of his ambition is motivated by a desire to get away from his job and some of the things he has seen as a social worker that have left him shaken. I just want to walk away from things. I read about in the files. I just want to walk away from what I see on the date on a daily basis. I don't know how much longer I can deal with this. I have no outlet. Robert hopes stand up is the answer. Well, that's a very interesting chapter.
Iwa. See Johnny Roberts having very, uh, they profile somebody who's really going to have a tough time of it. Has a lot, you know, going on. But I, I don't think it's fair to talk about like uh, it, it. It has to be hard, no matter where you are, middle of the country, uh, doing stand up. You know, and New York, you you New York, you can't just get on just every night. You get out multiple times a night. You can go all night long doing stand up in New York. So. That's probably like if you just want stage time, stage time, stage time is probably the best time, place to do it. Even more than than L.A. Although uh, when we went to the comedy store, did stay there all like that open mic just kept going and going <laughs> with only. But just like the gig that he was at, there's only five people there and that's not a paying gig. You know, all right, degrading, demoralizing, and degenerating. Go on stage or go to jail. That was the option presented to Native American prisoners of war during the final three decades of the 19th century when freedom of mobility was curtailed and free will suppressed. P.T. Barnum and William Buffalo Bill Cody were the two most famous names of 1800s showmanship. One was a famous circus impresario and the other staged Wild West recreations and they both subjugated native people for the entertainment of white patrons. In the 1840s, Barnum presented Native Americans as sideshow attractions under the auspices of pseudo-anthropological nonsense. At P.T. Barnum's American Museum in New York City, Native Americans were showcased for their authenticity, but the great showman wanted Native peoples to present his idea of authentic. If they did something that was actually authentic, he flew into a rage. (laughs) These wild Indians seemed to consider their dance dances as realities complained Barnum damn Indians anyhow they are lazy shiftless set of brutes though they will draw (laughs) draw an audience so yeah hostage Side, let's, let's just continue reading. You get it. Sideshows were gaining traction at the time. So-called dime museum freaks like an alligator man and the bearded lady were popular. Into the mix came native captives who were paraded around with racist backstories. Typical freak show promotions included Yanawawa advertised as 
an Indian princess and child rescued from the South Seas Islands by a sailor. In reality, they were a mother and child kidnapped from the plains of Iowa. Wow. So, this was a time when, of course, this is in the the 1800s, but I think it's in the late 1800s, when, um, you know, clearly, you could you could be put on you're forced to do something forced to be in a show right and so it was a whole different ball of wax but at the same time it's not that different because that's kind of how your choice of what you do in show business as far as like authenticity that hasn't changed that much you don't get to just choose if you write something it's going to get rewritten if you if you're an actor you don't get to go up and do your own thing uh every night uh or whatever stand-ups are really the only answer to like well how can you be authentic up to a point you could be somewhat authentic because you could use, you could use your own stories as a way of doing it in improv you have to go through a whole process of learning to be able to use your own stories and your authentic self uh, as part of but it's only a part of what you're doing. You're kind of building it around uh, others because you work with others and you're building it around not just others, but like comedy tropes, etc., etc. And uh, the true is the same is true of stand-up. You know, like uh, Johnny, look, look at Johnny Roberts' joke from the last open mic he was at. He was, he was doing contemporary stuff, right? And that's his truth. But if he was forced to, <laughs> if he was forced to work, he might have to, to, you know, if he had to audition for something like an actor does, he might have to be like, okay, yeah, I can ride a horse and go and go up and do that. So, well, let's keep reading. Natives were not participating of their own free will and could not have done so even if they wanted. Government policy kept them imprisoned on reservations where they were held at gunpoint. If the reservation system is to be maintained, discontented and restless or mischievous Indians cannot be permitted to leave their reservation and will go to leave their reservation at will and go where they please, wrote E.A. Hate. Wow, what a great name. H-A-Y-T. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 1878. This, if this is permitted, the most necessary discipline on the re- of the reservation would be entirely broken up. All authority over Indians would cease. Every movement 
was tightly controlled by the government and its military. Any native who strayed from the reservation on which he or she had been forcibly placed was punished, beaten, or killed. So, he or she, that's what's written in the book. <laughs> Should say uh, he, she, or they. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> in a landmark court case, the Ponca leader, Standing Bear, challenged the laws restricting Native American freedom of movement in 1879. A federal judge ruled in favor of the peaceful Indian to come and go as he wishes it with the same freedom to a white man. I see, now that um, specific language is the peaceful. <laughs> this is my commentary. All right. However, that freedom was often overruled by the same authorities who determined who was and was not a peaceful Indian. Ah, so I guess I didn't have to do the commentary there. The book did the commentary for me. It was at the time that rules concerning blood quantum were developed. The system imposed on Native Americans blood quantum was a way to diminish the number of natives to whom the government owed something in exchange for land. Yeah, no shit. Vine Deloria Jr., author of the influential book Custer Died for Your Sins, wrote of the laws. Okay, so before I even read this quote, put that in your your, your Amazon queue. Custer Died for Your Sins. Why not? Buy a book for your loved one this, uh, this holiday season. Hanukkah's already passed, but uh, Kwanzaa Christmas are coming up. Get a late, get a late Hanukkah gift. Who cares? Past. Okay, back to the quote. Past during the. I'm gonna even get more booky sounding. Past during the. Past during and after the Civil War that systematically excluded Indian people for a long time, an Indian was not presumed capable of initiating an action in a court of law, of owning property or of giving testimony against whites in court. Nor could an Indian vote or leave his reservation. Indians were America's captive people without any defined rights whatsoever. What a fun hundreds of years that was. (laughs) There was nothing scientific about blood quantum. The percentage of blood assigned to Native Americans was arbitrary. Natives forced onto reservations were deemed full blood or half blood by a white government agent depending on their appearance. One might be deemed 100% while his sibling was labeled 50%. This capricious, these capricious decisions cheated descendants out of land and annuities. The legacy of the practices endures to this day. Yeah, so legally, now you might be thinking like, what? What was owed to them? Yeah, things were owed in the United States. Yeah, things were owed. Still owed to this day, by the way. And yeah, they want to give, now they want to have, they want to have more Indians 
so that the divvying up can be small. All right. Actually, no, they probably do want, like, they want less Indians. So the, so, so that the, the main amount can be small. Yeah, depending on, depending on the treaty. There's all kinds of different treaties. You know, my tribe had the Treaty of Ruby Valley. And yeah, it was, it was divvied up, uh, according to blood quantum and all of that. And yeah, sure. It's so ridiculous. It, it was in some people's vested interests to get a little bit more, a bigger chunk of the pie. But who, you know, come on. Let's get it together. <clears throat> the erasure of native religions and languages became government policy during the final 30 years of the 19th century. Native children were forcibly separated from their families and sent to boarding schools to indoctrinate them. In both Canada and the United States, violent subjugation was policy. Canada's first prime minister, St. John A. MacDonald, made child separation a hallmark of his administration. MacDonald said, Oh, when the school is on the res- when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage. Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. So yeah, if you've listened to my Stuart School uh, episode, uh, you know all about industrial type schools. Not all about, but you know, my opinion on one in particular. Funded by the federal government and contracted to religious missionaries, the purpose of residential school of a residential school was to reprogram native children by force if necessary, eliminating their tribal beliefs, modes of dress, music, language, and thought. If they resisted, they were brutally abused, known as residential schools because students were required to reside on campus and institutions were notorious for their cruelty. When students spoke of their native languages, they were punished by having their tongue punctured with sewing needles. At, yeah, I mean, that's very specific. That probably happened at some. Uh, Others would be like, tongue cut out, possibly, toes cut off. And we know those cemeteries, you know, there's murders. I mean, come on. Just because you you don't have a cemetery, that don't mean nothing, especially in them. So there would be missionaries, but there'd also be like forts, military forts. It's not necessarily religious, believe me. At the St. Anne's Residential School, run by the Oblate Order of in Fort Albany, Ontario, a makeshift electric chair 
was built to punish students with electric shocks. Those who vomited in the wake of such abuse were forced to kneel and eat what they coughed up. Sexual abuse was especially rampant, and most schools had cemeteries on site. Funerals were often presided over by the very priests who had abused the deceased. An article in Canada Saturday Night, that's an unfortunate name for a certain comedy show, magazine published in 1909 stated Indian boys and girls are dying like flies. Even war seldom shows as large a percentage of fatalities as does the education system we have imposed on our Indian wards. Yeah. And they were also testing... Okay, this is outside of the book. They were also testing uh, nutrition. In Canada, that's where we find out how the how the food pyramid works and what we should eat every day because they would feed them... They would feed Indian kids... Uh, random ass diets like hey you're just eating rice or hey you're not gonna eat anything <laughs> like you know or hey you're gonna eat just fat you're gonna eat this you can eat <laughs> and be like oh well <laughs> I guess you can't just eat sugar it's bad for you oh my god anyways <clears throat> An article in Canada... Oh, yeah. Nope. Next paragraph. As First Nations peoples rose in objection, Prime Minister MacDonald said... that This name is also unfortunate. It makes me want to do a Norm MacDonald impression. Said they were... Forgetting all the kindness that had been bestowed upon them. Forgetting all the gifts that had been given to them. Forgetting all the government all that the government, the white people, and the Parliament of Canada had been doing for them in trying to rescue them from barbarity. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> You're not doing anything for somebody. Hey, that's like, uh... <laughs> I don't even want to say what that's like. With the policies in place, it is little wonder natives were absent from show business while Jewish immigrants and African Americans flourished on the stage. Yeah, because if you're locked up, I mean, what the fuck are you going to do? Well, you could be forced to, to do something. In 1883, Buffalo Bill Cody presented what would become his infamous recreations of American history for the first time. Before entering show business, he participated in the forcible relocation of Kiowa and Comanche peoples in the Union Army. Buffalo Bill scholar Deanne Stillman said Cody bragged about his exploits. So too, so too, by his own account, did he kill an, an Indian in his youth and others later while he was employed as a wagon train hand, unquote. His life was fictionalized in a series of best-selling pulp novels and magazines, many of which established stereotypes that later emerged in Western movies. One historian described Buffalo Bill's Wild West as the most important commercial vehicle for the transmission of the myth of the frontier. I wonder who this historian is. 
I want to know. The shows were filled with horse riding stunts and patriotic fanfare. Native performers enacted scenes that ended with their very own subjugation. Buffalo Bill's slogan was, Everything Genuine. Oh, jeez. But his desire for realism appalled his cast when he insisted on using actual scalps of murdered natives as props. Wow, Buffalo Bill. Yikes. Wow. I'm sure like I I was I thought that sentence was going when he insisted on using real natives and and even sitting bull but the the that that sentence went completely completely wee off to the left. Yikes. And you know well how do you get all these scalps? That's so weird. I thought they were the ones that I thought we were the ones that were scalping people. How did hmm maybe the history you know isn't history you know. Jeez. And and once again, by the way, Cliff Nesteroff going hard on the history, man. Going real hard. So I love it. <laughs> this is a this is a this is a little bit of a history book disguised as a as a as following comedians around. But uh hey, however you get it in there. Hundreds of Native American performers toured in Wild West shows in the turn of the century. Most considered it a respite from the oppressive reservation system, a lesser of two evils. Neither inexperienced, neither inexperienced nor naive, some volunteered to join the P.T. Barnum and Buffalo Bill simply to escape the oppressive reservation system and attain an income on the side. It was reported that some split payments with Barnum and Cody to help recruit others. Those hired as interpreters secured favorable conditions and good pay. Harvard scholar, scholar Philip Deloria said that joining the Wild West show served <coughs> as a form of escape. Wait. As a form of escape from agency and surveillance. Nearly 100 natives were recruited from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota every year. Indeed, the most significant regular flow of money onto the reservation between 1883 and 1913 may have come from Lakota performers traveling nationally and internationally, wrote Deloria. The late 1880s and early 1890s in particular were starving times for many Indian communities and performing represented not simply escape, but also food and wages for Indian actors from a number of reservations. So, we have a history of performing. (laughs) I think that's important. I think that's an important note to take from it. Uh, Of performing for wide audiences. So, not just performing, but performing for wide audiences. We've got this history. And what do you do? Show them what they want. (laughs) And I think there's an instinct to do that no matter what. I really do, because if you if you don't show them what they want, 
Oh, gee, everybody's got guns, don't they? Buffalo Bill's got guns. <laughs> and part of P.T. Barnum's got elephants. Stomp your, your ass. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> the Office of Indian Affairs later, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, objected to both the standing bear decision and Buffalo Bill's recruitment process they believed providing natives with a taste of freedom would make their imprisonment unmanageable, insisting that no natives leave without permission of the OIA. They fined Buffalo Bill several hundred dollars for doing something that the courts had already determined was perfectly legal. Yeah, you know, shit don't change. Thomas J. Morgan, the new OIA commissioner, came up with a blackmail plan. He announced that anyone wishing to join a Wild West show was free to do so. But if they did, they would be stripped of their allotments and the annuity spelled out by treaty. He wrote his annual report, Indians must conform to the white man's ways, peaceably if they will, forcibly if they must. So that's where that, that's a famous ass quote, by the way, and that's where that comes from. Take them out to do a show. Okay. Don't do that. We need your money. Shit. Suddenly, it became much harder for Buffalo Bill to secure performers. Few were willing to take the risk of losing their tribal status or the paltry annuities granted them in exchange for land as a workaround. Yeah, because if they fucking... You're wondering why, probably. Well, they were in a peace treaty. They were being asked to be at peace. So if they went and fought, they're basically already surrounded. And, you know, it's not a fair fight. It's going to be like, hey, Indians that we are barely feeding and starving. You know, defend yourself. Oh, you, you can't anymore? Yeah, well, you're... That's exactly what we want. And they knew that. So, and but also to lose, it's not, so the, the author is saying, to, oh, to lose what the, the, you know, what they're giving them. They weren't giving them very much. But again, it's not just to lose it. You, you couldn't come back and see your family ever again because you couldn't, you know, you would be this lone wolf separated out into the wild. There was a lot of fear and anxiety about that. You you didn't feel like you could leave. And also, you were give, being given medicine. And the quote-unquote medicine was alcohol. And you didn't know, like, you were, you were uh, bodily addicted to that. You would have to come back on. I know the book's probably going to get into it, but I, I, <laughs> my brain won't stop. Uh, you, and also, like, yeah. You're going to completely leave your people and your culture and and everything that you know. And you're going to go out into a world that, by the way, hates your guts. Thinks people in the New York Times are still writing articles that tribes and people who are not are uh, cannibals or, or savages or whatever it is. Savages is just another word. 
that they could say, hey, maybe that means cannibal. You know what I mean? Without having to actually say somebody's a cannibal. It was a way of saying that we could do whatever we want to these people. You know what I mean? And you could, I mean, if you were native and separated from the reservation, you had left, like they could just, according to the peace trees, you know, like up until this time, do whatever they want. But you can see how they could even fine you in court for doing something legal. So like, it was the ultimate catch 22. There's no bigger catch 22 than like try to leave the reservation at that, at that time. So, as a workaround, Buffalo Bill secured permission from federal authorities to offer a potential Native American performers a plea deal. Join the show or go to jail. Ah, so it's the catch, it's a catch 99 at this point. <laughs> the famed Hunk Papa Lakota leader Sitting Bull fled to Canada after the Battle of Little Bighorn and the death of General Custer in 1876. After months in hiding, he was extradited back to the United States, where he was given the option of prison time or performing with Buffalo Bill. Reduced to a mere sideshow attraction, comedian Rich Hall observed in 2012 television special Inventing the Indian. It was as if Geronimo, as if a Guantanamo detainee suddenly had to appear on X Factor. <laughs> And Rich Hall. Hmm. Might want to look up that name on your Google. Find another native comedian, my friend. Alright. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we're going to stop there in the middle of the chapter. We made it eight pages in today. Hooray. We'll make it further tomorrow.